Hey, this is Britt Vargas, and I am the High School Ministry Associate Director at Calvary Community Church here in Westlake Village, California. And this is our HSM podcast. Thank you so much for checking us out today. I hope this encourages and inspires you. Here's today's message. Good evening. How are you guys doing? Wow, that's awesome. Whoa, that was a lot. Awesome. Um, if you're meeting for the first time, my name is Eric Kajun. I serve here as a high school pastor. We've been blazing through and worshiping over the book of Isaiah. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a booklet, please make your way over to the table or the bench over there. There's a bunch for you guys to have. This is why I think you guys should have this. One, it's free, right? Can't beat that with a stick. That's awesome. Uh, two, uh, it's an opportunity for you guys to have that for your personal devotions down the line. Three, if you want to be able to share that with other people, you can and you have a good way to. So feel free to grab one of those if you don't have one um, and make sure you guys are following along with us. So if you guys have your Bibles, open those up to Isaiah 53. I'm going to invite you guys to stand back up as you read this text together. It's in Isaiah chapter 53. And again, we do this not because it's some magic or crazy stuff. It's because, hey, as we read this, we're posturing our hearts in the place of humility. Isaiah 53, when you get there, say amen. Amen. Or you can say H to the Izzo, which is like Jehovah, whatever. Uh, Amen. Awesome. Here we are. Isaiah 53. We're going to read this together. It says this in the NLT. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. And he was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. We thank that as we have spent time even just reading these texts, or God, reading these powerful words, Lord, you've already gone before us, Lord God, making hearts uh, soft and to hear your truth of how you've died for them, how you've cared for them, how you've loved them, Lord. And you're giving people, Lord God, a challenge, Lord God, a motivation in your strength to live for you. And just let me pray, everybody said, Amen. You may have your seats. You may have your mm, seats. There we go. That's going to be interesting on the podcast. Whoever hears that little sound. Anyway, Isaiah 53. Now, why are we jumping to Isaiah 53? There's so many chapters in the book of Isaiah. There's a ton. So many. In fact, how many chapters? 66, right? We learned this when we began uh, the series in, in, uh, in, in day Day one, which was Isaiah chapter six, there's 66 books in the in 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, which actually matches the Bible, right? Divided in half, we have how many in the first part? 39, and the other hand is 29. So those together make 66. Interesting how that's all divided. But why are we going into Isaiah chapter 53 in particular? One. Because it is the greatest single text of scripture to verify the validity of the Bible. It's the the single one text that verifies the validity of the Bible. If you guys remember as you read through that, it talked about how, who has believed our message? Who has the Lord revealed? 
he grew up. And it's talking about Jesus 700 years before it happened. It talks about him, about how he was taking our sins as if it's already happened. So if you never had any text of scripture ever in life and you're like, what, what do I know about Jesus? And you had Isaiah 53, you'd be able to know and, and to be able to val- verify that this book is truly written by the Holy Spirit. Because no one can know the future 700 years ahead. No one can know that except God himself, which means the Bible is solid. It is real. Two, it's the most quoted text in the Bible. This particular chapter in particular is the most quoted chapter in the whole Bible. Three, if the New Testament was lost and all we had was Isaiah 53, imagine a world where you go to your little hotel room, wherever, you go to visit with your family, Hawaii, Vegas, or I don't know where you guys go, people go to Ventura, Santa Barbara, wherever, and you go into your, your little hotel room and you open the cupboard, what's inside? What kind of Bible is inside there? A Gideon Bible. And what, what version is in there? Basically the New Testament, right? And if you never had that New Testament, that never existed. If, if you never heard of John or, or, or Peter or, 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 or even like all these other apostles, Matthew. If you never had those gospels, if you read Isaiah 53, you would have to say that's Jesus. It couldn't be anyone else. In fact, people who are Jews and people who are uh, of Jewish descent who believe in the scripture, like they, they usually pass over the scripture. In fact, they don't even read it in the synagogue. Because if you ask them to read the scripture and you ask them, who is this? Who is this text talking about? Who is it referencing? They'll say, it has to be Jesus. It has to be Jesus. So this is almost called a fifth gospel. So if you're asking, where can I share the gospel from that proves the Bible is real, that proves that, that Christ did live before time, that God is prophetically speaking, you'd look at Isaiah chapter 53. You would still have the gospel. It's actually one of four servant songs. And I, when I say servant songs, that means these are songs in the book of Isaiah that talk about Jesus and they're just songs about him being a servant. And so chapter 53 is the epitome, it's the height, it's the crescendo, it's the the end of the highest point of the book of Isaiah, talking about our suffering servant. It says here in Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole, whipped so we could be healed. And all of us like sheep have done what? Gone astray. We left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. All this to say that this book is prophetically speaking of the future. It's speaking in past tense as if it's happened. And it's highlighting the word our. That we are the ones who have done all these things. We are the people who looked upon Christ. Because people would say this boldly and make bold claims. If, it was, if I was there in that moment, I would not crucify Jesus. Not true. You would. How do we know that? Because even now you don't believe Christ with all your heart. Even now you struggle to do so. Even now you you are struggling with sin and, and barely making it through. And this is what I'm trying to say is this, that we should not look at these people in Scripture and say we are higher and better than them. No, human nature is flawed from the beginning. All of us would have been in that same boat. So it's referencing that all of us have sin, all of us are broken, all of us need help. And it's speaking prophetically of a king who has come to save us and to make us free. In 53, 1 through 6, again, he says, who has believed our message? Again, he was speaking to the Jews, but also prophetically to us. 
What are the two things we see in this text? Here, if you're a note-taking person, someone chewed gum, and it's pretty nasty here on the stage, so I'll just kick this over to the side. If you can have a piece of paper, that will be awesome. 53, 1 through 6. What are the two things that we see there? One, sin. We reference and see that sin is highlighted. Two, we see that uh, there's a question or even an answer to the question, how can a sinner be made right with God? So two things. One, sin, and how can a sinner be made right with God? Isaiah chapter 53, 1 through 6 summarizes two things. One, sin, and two, how can a sinner be made right with God? And we're going to break that down even further into three sections. So if you guys are super note takers, those are two things. Here's the third, here are three things again, three sections of this thing. It says one, we're going, to, we're going to see these three things. One, our sin. Two, our Savior who is the substitute. And three, our salvation. Our sin, the Savior who is our substitute. And the third one, our salvation. It says in 53.4, we see our sin highlighted. It says... Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrow that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. No, it says it was our weakness, it was our sorrows, it was our sin that weighed him down. What this scripture, this text right now, verse 4 is telling us that all our deep griefs, our sorrows, all the anxieties, all the problems we have in this world, all the brokennesses we have in this world are dominated and pushed and have a root in the fact that they are rooted in sin. They're rooted in sin. Every issue you have on the earth is rooted in sin. Not because people are good and sometimes they mess up. No, we are broken people. We are sinful people. That's a great claim of the Bible. That we are rooted in sin. In fact, Romans uh, 5.12 says that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. What does this mean? Way, 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 way back. Go way, way, way back, all the way back. I don't know how many years back, go all the way back. There was a guy called Adam, first man on earth. And everyone was in Adam. Every single one of us was in Adam. That sounds kind of like intense. We're like, what? First man. No, all of us were in Adam. And when Adam sinned, every single one of us, every, the whole human race, ended up having this disease and sickness inside of us. It's kind of like how sometimes they talk about how uh, some people have a particular gene in their body that passes from one person to the next. And it just goes down from one person to the next, to the next, to the next, from generation to generation. This has been proven today about how some people are more inclined to alcoholism because they have that gene in their family. And so they, they tell you, you probably shouldn't drink because you have this inside of you. And what's happening here is this. We have that genome, the genome of sin. And it's in every single one of us. Now, for you guys, as you read your Bible, and I trust you will begin to read your Bible as you go back home and read and spend time with God, you're going to see two words in the Bible, right? First one is sin. Say sin. The second is sins. And there's a difference. Sin slash iniquity. Sin means, or iniquity means the inborn sin that I just explained to you that comes from Adam. All of us have it. All of us have that inside of us. And then you'll see the word sins in the Bible. And the word sins like refers to the expression of our innate sin, the expression of those things. Every single time you lie or cheat or steal or gossip. Or like do all these things to preserve yourself. That is sins. Now the Bible says he took care of not only our sin, but also our sins. Like not only our original issue, but every single thing that follows after the fact. Like you're completely covered. This is like the best insurance ever. Like you're talking about progressive and all this different stuff. No, he covers us 
all the way through everything is covered by him. And the fact that we all have this sin issues like a pandemic, meaning every single person is affected. It's not a small group of people. Every single person is affected. In fact, Isaiah 53, 6, all of us says, all of us like sheep have strayed away and have left God's path to follow our own. Sin is saying, God, I know my way and I don't want your way. I know better than you. I trust my own strength. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And the reality is no one likes to talk about sin in the world at all. If you mention anything about sin that's against the will of God, people say you are, like you hate a people group. Or they say that you are basically, well, let's just say it this way. You're just a hater of everything that they want to do. That's basically it. If you're against what they want to do, then you're a hater and you hate that particular thing. Because no one wants to talk about sin. In fact, in Hinduism, sin is relative. Like, it's good or evil. It depends on what you're doing. It just goes any other way. Like, however you want to, like, re- react in that moment, it's good or it's bad. It's relative. And if you're good, depending on the relativism of that goodness or that holiness, depending on whose standard, I don't know, you might come back as a butterfly, which dies after a few weeks, but that's sad as well. But you come back as something else, right? Or if you do something evil, you come back as something even less than, right? Or people who are like the Baha'i have this claim that all of us are innately good, and yet how many of you have been two? You've all, no one's been two? Okay, awesome. Two years old. How many of you have been two years old ever in your life? Oh, there you go. I was like, man, you guys are like, you skipped? Like what happened? Right? No one needs to teach a two-year-old. Go to ask your parents, how were you doing the terrible twos? Like why does that word even exist? Because during that age range, like you begin to see the, the involvement of that character, the negativity, the inclination towards sin. You don't have to tell that kid to desire things that are not his or hers. Because all of us innately have that sin. So you can't agree with, for example, the Baha'i people who say people are all innately good. What God did was he made a substitute for us. He says, even though you people are horrible, you're bad people, you need help and you can't do it on your own. And even though you are literally, Ephesians talks about how we were God haters. It's what, what it means really to, to be an, a friend of, of the world, it means to be an enemy of God. And for me, that's scary, right? To be an enemy of God. And you railed against the God of the universe. What he does, what does is he brings a sacrifice. He brings a perfect lamb. See, back in Israel, what they would do is to sacrifice Something to, to they bring something like a lamb that was clean, that had no spot, no blemish, that wasn't lame. So you bring your best animal to present to God as a sacrifice, a substitute to cover your sin. And Jesus becomes this lamb. It says this in Romans 6.23. It says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because we have sinned, there must be a sacrifice. There's someone who has to to satisfy the the wrath of God. And Jesus becomes this lamb in verse 7 of, of 53. He says, he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. Now, I don't know about you guys, because if someone hits you in the side of your jaw, you want to throw not fluffy pow- like puppies or flowers you want to throw? Hands. Thank you. All together? 
hands. I know, right? This is the inclination of man, right? Yet he never said a word. The Bible says he could call four legions of angels down. Now, one, like one legion of angels, if you're like now just pick, picking real numbers, it's about 120,000 people. You guys can Google that later on. Maybe it's 150,000. It's a lot. It's a lot. But one angel in the Old Testament destroys the whole of the Assyrian army. One angel like this. One. But can you imagine the tension in heaven as the king of glory is being nailed to a cross unjustly and the muscles of these angels are tensing like, let me at him. Just give me one second. I'll be down there. I'll take care of it. Yet he does nothing. He never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. The big word for this, if you're a Bible nerd, is vicarious substitution. He substitutes for us. He stands in our place. He makes a great exchange. He makes a scandal of grace. These are all the ways you've heard and sung about this. It's a scandal. It's a great exchange. It's a beautiful exchange. But why must it be blood? Because, again, the wage of sin is death. It's a life for a life. It's blood for, for blood. Like a life for a life. Vida por vida. Like, you know what I'm trying to say? Is this life for life? That's what it is. If you are standing and making a statement that God, I, I, I own my life, he goes, all right. Are you really ready to take the whole weight of what it means to bear this alone? And he wants to not give you that, that weight, that pain, that struggle. He wants to take that away from you. In Los Alamos, New Mexico, in the year 1945, there's a Canadian... Canadian scientists, and back in the day, 1945, they were splitting these, like, basically uranium, right? So they're splitting it in half, like, to, to make sure when it gets to critical mass, it doesn't explode. So they're doing all these experiments, and they're pretty, like, weird because it's 1945. Can you guess what he was splitting uranium with? A screwdriver, right? So this guy is 1945 splitting uranium with a screwdriver, and when it gets to critical mass and, like, it gets, like, super blue, he cuts it in half so it doesn't blow up. One day, he's splitting this uranium. This scientist called Lewis Slatin. You guys can Google this on your own time. He's splitting it, and what happens is it ends up, like, hitting critical mass because he actually dropped the screwdriver. Oh, my gosh. On the ground. Now, I don't know if you guys have heard of Dr. Manhattan, and you guys are big Marvel fans or whatever. What color is Dr. Manhattan? Blue. So this uranium ends up, like, turning blue, and a blue powder starts to spread throughout the room. So what does this guy do? What does Lewis do in a split second? He decides to put, his, put out his hand and to grab this uranium and allow himself to be exposed to all this uranium. What ends up happening is he ends up being exposed, of course, and then down the line, he ends up dying. You guys are waiting for him to turn blue, right? I know, I know, sorry. But he doesn't turn blue, right? But he ends up dying because he's exposed to all this uranium. What he did in that moment was say, instead of all these people dying, I'm going to step in. I'm going to be a stand-in. I'm going to be a sacrifice. He gave himself willingly, knowing there was a high cost of his life, knowing he would not survive. But seven people in that room were saved that day. What happens is that Jesus stepped in for us as well. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And another another version says, He who knew no sin became sin. 
Like he became and embodied all of who we are and what we've done. Like all the thoughts you have in your mind, all your fears and deepest anxieties and depressions and all the things that you were working through. Like all your struggles with porn and disobedience. All those moments where you decide to say, no God. Or where you decide to gossip behind people's back and say you love them and yet you do all these things behind them. He said, I'm going to take all those things, all those things, and I'm going to become those things. He became that. And what does God do? God then treated Jesus as if he had committed every sin so he could treat us the way Jesus deserves to be treated. How does Jesus, a blameless, holy God, we just talked about it for all these weeks, a God who owns everything, how does he deserve to be treated? He deserves to be lifted high. In fact, the angels in his presence sing what? Holy, holy, holy. They're always singing and they're so captivated of the glory of who he is and they, and they have to cover their eyes because they can't see his glory. And they have four wings, four co- two covering their eyes and two covering their feet and they're flying around and they just to get a little peek of his glory and they can't help but be in his presence. Well, they can't put their eyes on him. They want to be in his presence. They're captivated by his holiness, by his glory, by his grace. That's what he deserves from us. And yet, he makes the exchange so we can receive that. We just sing about that. That he is our champion. Like, like, and, and he puts us in glory. These broken people, he elevates us to glory. It reminds me of this hymn. It says this. It says, he, said a, he, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song. Amazing grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. This is what makes grace amazing. What makes grace truly amazing is when you understand your position, your role, and that this God who owns everything still decided to humble himself and give himself for you. A rebel, a sinner, a person undeserving of that love. That's amazing. And that is grace. He says in 52, 13 through 15, just the chapter before, he says, See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. This is true. This is prophetically speaking of Jesus. They were amazed when they saw him. Like, who is this carpenter dude? Like, sure, he may look buff or whatever, but can he really be the salvation of Israel? Like, the Bible says there was nothing good. He was not good looking. So if in your mind you think Jesus was a good-looking, tall, like he was just not any of that. None of that. People looked at him and were shocked. You're the Messiah? You're the one? And it says this. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. He was beaten so badly from the moment he was arrested to the point, the point when he was crucified. Never slept. Beaten throughout the night. His face was so disfigured you could not tell that he was a human. Other versions actually say that he looks like a scar. He looks like a scab. He seemed hardly human. And from his appearance one could scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. When Pilate has Jesus come into his courtroom, he's never met Jesus. He's heard stories of him. He's heard about how he has raised the dead and made people who are, who are sick like be healed. How he's turned water into wine. 
And now these Jews who hate him. Remember we talked about how the Jews really hate this scripture. They hate the, like the idea that Jesus could be the Messiah. They bring him to this space. And Pilate, after spending a few minutes with him, goes, like, what's wrong with this guy? Y'all are crazy. Y'all are wilding out. Why are you trying to kill this man? He's an innocent man. That's what he says. And then he washes his hand off and then says, okay, I'm going to give you guys two people to choose. You can choose Barabbas, who was basically a rebel, a zealot. He's a murderer. He was being arrested, not just for being a, a, a zealot, a religious zealot who was fighting the Roman Empire, but he was also a killer, a murderer. He shanked some people, all right? This guy's not a good dude. And so what happens is these people, who do they choose, Jesus or Barabbas? They chose Barabbas. They said, save Barabbas. Save Barabbas. They chose to save Barabbas instead of the savior of the world. And this is the consistency of our hearts. We will always choose that unless our hearts are captivated by the glory and the grace of God. We will always choose Barabbas. We will always choose the wrong thing. We will always choose our own way. The Bible says this in 53, 10 through 11. And this is trippy, right? We're talking about a God. And most songs, if you guys are, are aware, check out your playlist. Maybe you have some Ye on your playlist or Kanye, when, depending on where you like, you know, met the guy. Right? Like you have all these things in your playlist. But most worship songs are going to be about what? The love of God, right? The love of God. But people forget the holiness of God and, and how he's also a God who seeks to bring people to himself in the matter of his holiness, in the matter of his grace. And it says this, it was the Lord's good plan, 53, 10 through 11, it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. It was a plan and it was a good plan. Other versions say it was his good pleasure. It brought God joy to crush him. Now that doesn't sound loving at all, but let's keep going. And cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees that all is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous for he will bear all their sins. We read this uh, last week talking about how for us, for us, we see God as our joy. He's the center of our focus. He's all that we live for. But here it's saying also that God lives to and he enjoys us. He's captivated by us and many people, not all people, it says right there, because you might say all people are going to be saved here in John 3, 16. No, it says everyone has the opportunity. And in Isaiah chapter 1 and 6, we talked about how this God moves heaven and earth. He brings everything. He lays down mountains flat. He makes valleys to be filled with earth. He makes like ways in the desert and gardens in the desert. That was Isaiah chapter 42. Like all these things are happening by the power of this God to bring us to a place of safety. In Isaiah chapter 1, we read together, he says, why do you want to be beaten? Like why do you allow, and, and, and he talks about their sin, like destroying them. Your body is filled with bruises. He goes, why do you want to live that life? Why do you want to be on that plan? Why do you want to be on the struggle bus? This is what's happening with us. We always know that there's a way for us to escape this sin, and yet we choose to stay on that struggle bus. He goes, no, get off the bus. Come be with me. Like, be free. He gives us that opportunity. But not everyone, and I'm not, I'm not ignorant of the fact that not everyone is going to receive that truth. But you have an opportunity to. 
And so we, when we come up here on the stage to sing and to praise and to proclaim the word of God, it's called crying out. Like when Jonah speaks to Nineveh, he says, God says, go cry out. Go cry out. Go scream. Go pray. Go inquire. Go implore. Like tell people of the urgency of this life that is needed in God. Because apart from this life from God, there is no life. This is why we spend week in and week out sharing this in different forms, through song, through text, through a prayer wall. The truth that God is our only way out of this sin issue. See, salvation is free, but you have to accept it. He will not force it on you. He will make everything happen and align for you to receive it, but you must accept it. Which is insane to think that we are both predestined and have free will. That God still organizes all these things together to make them happen for his will, for his glory. And yet he still invites us to participate to say, hey, Malachi, hey, Aaron, hey, like all you people, I want you to choose me. Andrew, choose me. Choose me. And it's such a loving way he does it. In fact, in Matthew 23, he cries out to Jerusalem. And this is Jesus, his heart broken. He goes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often have I wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. He goes, I have all control, I have all power, but I'm going to let you make this decision. Like, what? I wouldn't give myself all that opportunity. I would not do that at all. But that's what God does. So how do we deal with this sin in day-to-day life? How do you deal with sin? How do I deal with sin? One, I deny it. I'm like, I got no problem. I'm good. There are people who could cut off their finger and be like, I'm good. I don't need to go to hospital. I got some duct tape. I'll just fix it right here. Like that's where, where people are, honestly. They live in denial. And 1 John 1, 8, it says this, that if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So when we deny it, too, we work really hard. We go, dude, this is the level, this is the standard, so I'm going to work really hard to get to that level. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to hit all those mission trips, Uganda and Ukraine, back to back. I'm on both planes. What time you guys open up for service? I'm going to be there. Like, you do all the things. But it's beyond doing things. It's beyond just doing stuff. He's after your heart, not a religion, religious relationship. He wants you to love him and accept him by faith. It says in Romans 3.20, For no one can be ever, be ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And then it says in Galatians 2.16, it echoes the same thing saying, Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. Meaning you don't have to be baptized to accept Jesus. You don't have to have communion to, to love Jesus. You don't have to do anything else that's like extracurricular, like extracurricular to, to, to love Jesus. You don't have to go on a journey or be a, a pray in a certain way or put your hands up or put your hands down. No, like it's about faith in God. You trust this God. You believe that you have an issue and you're confessing it. In fact, the word there that comes up next is confession. And confession means that you agree. You say, yes, I do have an issue. Yes, I am struggling. Yes, I do need this Jesus that you're talking about. We've spent about, what, 20, 30 minutes just me just sharing with you guys, almost popping my veins saying, guys, there's an urgency here. Eyes up. There's an urgency here. Apart from this Jesus of Nazareth, there is no life. This is urgent. 
This is why we implore you guys to go out and ask people and tell people and pray for people. Because there is no hope under heaven. There's no other name under heaven in which people can be saved except the name of Jesus. He says in 1 John 1, 9, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. See, confession is admitting, it's an admission that you messed up and accepting that you cannot fix it yourself. It's saying, I, I know I messed up and I can't fix it myself. I can't make this happen. It takes humility. And humility is this, the center thing of this, of this scripture where God himself, who is full of power, full of authority, still says, I'm going to die for Sebastian. I'm going to die for all these people in this room. Like Jack, that guy's my boy. I'm going to die for him. Treya, I love her to death. Like her nails are flying. Like this is how I'm going to do it. Like, like God knows all the intricacies of who we are. We talked about this in Isaiah chapter 1. He knows these people. He calls them his people. And you are his people. And he wants to give himself to you. He won't force himself on you. He'll just say, hey, here I am. I've moved heaven and earth for you. Who, who do you want to choose, me or all the world? This is where he puts it. This is how he says it. This is the gospel. Like this has been like what now, I think at this point now, 35 minutes of me just saying, hey, God is good. We need him. Like this is what we do. We're here to share the truth of the gospel. That there's no other way apart from Christ to be saved. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as I tell this final story, I heard it a little earlier uh, this week about uh, a world where there's a, a little village in India. And in this village in India people end up having a disease, right? We don't know what's going on with it, but about three or 13 people are, psh, man, they're sick and they have it and they're dead. So they send naturally doctors over to go check it out. And they go over to this little village to check it out. And then they find out not three or 13 people are dead, but there's about actually 30 people who are dead. So you go to bed and you're like, all right, that's the little village in India, whatever, it's all good. <laughs> you know, America. And you go to bed. You don't think of anything of it, right? And then what happens next is you hear that someone in Iran has this strange flu all of a sudden, right? Chew, yeah, people got some strange flu in Iran. Oh my gosh. And then it moves over to the UK and France and all these places. Now it's covered the whole of Europe. And so the, the American government decides we're going to close down the United States. Naturally so. And so they close down the states. No travel. If your family's stuck in Europe, I'm sorry. They're going to have to stay there for a little bit. There's this flu that's going around, and that's what's happening. We're, you're shutting it down. And then what happens is you hear that someone in New York has this particular flu, this sickness. Now, what do you do? And you're like, okay, it's getting a little crazy. I don't know what's going on. But let me, like, chill, right? I'm, just, I'm, I'm not going to worry about this right now. Uh, a few days go by, and then you hear, guess what? There's people in L.A. who have this flu. Man, now it's big time. People start sewing masks and buying masks and doing all this different stuff. And people are ready to, like, for this whole, this whole ordeal, what's going on. And so what they say is this. They say the only way to cure this, someone has to have pure blood. Someone has to have this blood that can cleanse us, that is good, that we can make a serum to heal everyone. And so what do they do? They say, everyone, line up. Go to, go to your nearest doctor. Sign up. We will test your blood and see if you, if you have this, like, opportunity in your, in your blood to heal people. You go with your family, meaning I would go with my wife and my two kids. You go with your wife and your two kids. Bigelow, good stuff, right? Praise God for your wife and two kids. You know what I'm trying to say? 
got you, bro. Right? So you, you go up, right? Prophetically speaking, Isaiah, yeah, 53. Uh, so we go up and you go to the clinic and everyone's getting tested. You're kind of nervous. You're like ruffling your shirt, you know. And they get in, you get tested. Everyone gets tested and you wait outside, right? And then you hear the doctor coming from like the doorway, busting through the doorway. It's running. It's like, Bigelow. And you're like, what? Bigelow. And you're like, me? Me? No, no, the kid. So your son has, has the, like the, the, what we need for everyone to be healed. So what ends up happening is you say, all right, all right, take him, take him, take him. Take the blood. The doctor, like, everyone's, like, cheering and happy and whatever. And then you, like, you come up. The doctor's like, hey, we, we actually need, like, all your son's blood. We didn't know it was going to be a kid. And we need everything of him. In fact, if we take his blood, he's going to die. What do you do? You, maybe you make a decision to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this, this, this kid go. I'm going to let him, because you're like, the world, my son, what do I do? You and your wife make a decision. You say, all right, it's going to happen. We're going to give our son up for, so that everyone can live. And so you go into the room. The doctor says, you know, say goodbye to your son. And you're like, man, goodbye. You know, and it's, it's, this is what I want for people to be set free. Could you do that? Like, honestly, could you walk away from your son? You're walking th- out, of the, out of that, like, room. And he's like, like, dad, where are you going? Dad, don't leave me. Why have you forsaken me? This is what happened to Jesus on the cross. He goes, Father, why have you forsaken me? Like, he was forsaken, so you don't have to feel forsaken. This is what's happening right now. Would you have done that yourself? Would you have been at peace with that? As he cries out your name, God turned his back against his son. He became sin. Like I said, he became that sin. The glory that he was supposed to receive, you receive. This is a scandal. This is a scandal. And now your son, the serum is spread out to everyone. People have an opportunity. And yet, when you gather to celebrate your son, to celebrate what he's done for other people, people like kind of are kind of in the moment. They're kind of texting. They're kind of paying attention. They're kind of like, ah, should I go there or should I go for sports on this day? No, I'm going to go for sports. Like they have totally missed the fact that this whole world has been saved by your son and they don't want to celebrate him or even trust that what he did was the real deal. They just play on his name. Like they throw no respect on who Jesus really is. And that's what's happening. We don't see God as God. I've said this a few times. If you don't see God as the highest person, as the highest view, everything else then just is up to your standards. And your standards are low. They're low. He is the one who holds the standard. He's the one who holds our heart, who holds the world. The God who holds the stars also has scars on his hands. And he has held all of our sin, all of our pains in his hands as well. The same hands that hold the stars have scars for us. This is what he has done. This is what God has done for us. This is the beautiful exchange, the scandal of grace. In a few moments here, we're going to share communion. And communion is not something to trifle with that you just have a little cracker and a little piece of juice, whatever, and you like, you know, you suck it down, whatever. It's nothing like that, right? Like, this is real. And I know I'm smiling, I'm making light of it, but this is the reality. We're just like, oh my gosh, it's communion. This is awesome. And you go, let me get mine. Did you do communion? Take pictures and selfies, and that's it. No. Like, God died, He gave Himself for you. This is huge. We're remembering this sacrifice. 
in its depth, in its entirety, realizing that that should have been us. That could have been us. And yet God said, no, I'm going to stand in your place. Now, if you're not a Christian, I would implore you, I would beg of you, please, don't take that communion. Not to say, oh, I don't just feel like a hypocrite. No, 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 it's beyond that. I want you to have a full understanding of what God has done. There are people in Corinthians, the book of Corinthians, who took this lightly. They didn't truly honor God for who he was. The Bible says they got sick and some even died. Now, if that doesn't put the fear of God in you, I don't know what will, right? Like, that's what happens. And you're like, oh my gosh, he said that from stage. I know, it's the truth. It's what it is. It's what the Bible says, right? I would want you to say, like, this is what I really understand. I want, this is what I really want for myself. And so at this moment, I'm asking you guys to bow your heads and to close your eyes. And if you have never, ever, you've heard this presentation for the first time, you're like, who's this random guy from Africa? He's been screaming at us for like 45 minutes, right, about Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, and how he wants to save us and free us. Like, this is not, this, how does this happen? How are we here? Like, how did... How do I even end up in this place? I don't even know. How did you end up coming here? Was it by your own will? Who knows? But God has moved heaven and earth, schedules, whatever it is, to bring you to this one moment to hear the truth of the gospel. That we need him. We need a substitute. And he has done it for us. He is our champion. He is worthy of praise. And with every eye closed and head bowed in this room. If you are making a decision right now, it's an invitation for you. If you are making an invitation, a conscious decision to say, I recognize that I can do it on my own and God can. I'll invite you to put up your hand. Put up your hand boldly. I see you. Put up your hand boldly. Leaders, please take note. Put up your hand boldly. Amen. You've made a declaration saying that, God, I need you and you alone. It's not about money. It's not about just my safety, my own personal peace. It's about you. That, God, you are the center of this gospel. I'm looking for you to save me, to bring me back to you. Allow me to pray this prayer. And if you've never prayed this prayer, just pray together with me. Say, dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I cannot save myself. That you are my champion. That you stepped in the gap for my sin. You carried my sorrow. You carried my grief. Jesus, help me trust you every day. Help me live for you. God, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your love. And I choose to honor you as the Lord of my life. If you pray that prayer and you put up your hand, there have been leaders who saw your hand shut up. They're going to find you. And if, if by chance maybe we didn't see you put up your hand or maybe, guess what, you're like, I didn't want to put up my hand. It felt awkward. Guess what? Your life is going to be more awkward, trust me. Like, like, at this moment, as you trust God, things are going to change and shift for you. Sometimes in the hardest of ways, but also the sweetest of ways. Because now you have God 
on your side. That's a blessing. Lord, I thank you for those who have made a decision to trust you and for those who have trusted you already and are continuing to make that decision every day. Lord, we thank you for the miracle of salvation that you have just substituted like us for yourself to give us life and life abundantly. Lord, I ask that you strengthen my brothers and sisters to trust you every single day of their life, Lord. And when they fall, when they slip, Lord God, let them know that you are there to catch them and to help them run that race, Lord God. Let them trust you as a God who loves them, who is for them, not against them. In Jesus' name we pray, everybody said, amen. What we're going to do now is share communion. There's going to be at the back of the room a bowl. So if you've trusted Jesus, I want to release you guys right now to go grab a communion element from that bowl. And we'll come back to our seats. So feel free to go grab that. Again, if you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please go and grab one of those. Feel free if you're at the bowl to pass those to people who are behind you. Mariah, please grab me one. Grab me two, please. Thank you. One for Jaden and one for myself. precious, precious moment for us to reflect on what God has continued to do, what he will continue to do. Thank you so much. And as people grab theirs, here's a reminder. This little biscuit, as flaky as it is, represents <coughs> Jesus' body that was broken for us. The Bible says he could not even be seen as a man. This thing is like so light and fluffy and yet like when you press it, it's like gone. This is our life. Like it, this is how we are. The Bible says we're like these flowers, here today, gone tomorrow. But God decided to crush Jesus, to destroy him and was broken for us. And as we take this, this bread, remember that this is Christ's body that was broken for us. You can take the bread. Then we have this drink, this juice, which represents the blood of Jesus that washes away all our sins. The Bible says, though our sins are as scarlet, we'll make them as white as snow. That's good news. Somebody like clap and like, this is good news that our life really has been hidden in Jesus. Our sins washed away. This is the good news that his blood did for us. And so now we take this remembering that this blood has cleansed us and makes us new. The next few moments we're going to begin to reflect on that. We're going to use the prayer wall and to write praise reports. We're going to petition on this God, this God. Our, see, our faith is not in prayer. Our faith is in God who answers prayer, right? So we're trusting that this God is going to answer prayer. We're going to spend this time reflecting on this sacrifice as we sing songs about what he's done for us, our champion, our victor. So I invite you guys to stand up, to come to the front for worship. I'm going to pray. We're going to continue to worship the Lord. Lord, I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for what you've done for us, Lord. I ask that as we take this time reflecting, you may show us 
our inadequacies, but also show us your grace. Let us be like Isaiah, who says, I'm a man of unclean lips, amongst the people of unclean lips, and yet you choose to love him and to give him glory and even to send him out. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in us and through us. In Jesus' name, all people in the room say, amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this, don't forget to subscribe and also check out past episodes. For more content from Calvary HSM or to connect with us, visit us on Instagram at CalvaryHSM805. Go live and love like Jesus.